so tell us a bit about yourself like just give us a like, give the listeners a short introduction Well um this is Rishvir Kaur my husband Dave Singh and I've been married for 10 years yes. um and I guess the the big the big deal is that he's African American and so <laughs> we, we so you know kind of makes us a bit of a unicorn family because that's not something that's usually um seen here in the North American sangeet um and uh so we get a lot of questions i think the biggest question we usually get is um you know how he came into sikki and the assumption even from you know um sangeet here is that he converted so that we could get married which couldn't be further from the truth so um yeah yeah okay i guess one thing i like to point out is that teg singh is a fully amritari sikh isn't he yes like yeah. yes okay yeah. yeah um and uh one thing i always have to point out to people too because um you know the assumption like i said is that he became amritari or whatever to get my parents blessing or something like this is that uh teg singh was blessed to receive amrit before i had the courage to do so so he's uh He's been my role model in my own Sikhi too. So, ah uh, yes, so <clears throat> I guess uh, the typical stereotype we have in the community that um people just do this to get married interracially yeah. that doesn't hold any ground, does it, for you guys? No, certainly. No, not. certainly not. Yep, and I guess um the reason I approached you guys, I guess, was about this topic was because I mean, I felt that as I. personally knew you Benji that you guys would be mature enough to discuss this topic because um the reason why this topic even came up like uh, as I did advertise that it's on sex is that I had someone from India approach me a listener inquiring that can you do one on how uh Sikhs see sex as a natural process as opposed to what we have in the Punjab which is that cultural conservatism around it you know that if you talk about it you're pretty much showing the back door you're showing the exit and you're pretty much told to just disappear pretty much when you talk about such matters but that doesn't really hold much ground in the west does it now because that has led to a whole decade or more than a decade of sexual repression and now we are seeing the fruits of that where there is sexual abuse all over gurdwaras and what not really yeah um I can I think maybe as as Punjabi I'll say that that um that repression has been there for much longer than any of us can you know in our in our generation are aware of and the you know the as a woman to to speak about the misogyny and the the patriarchal um you know like the the norms that have been passed down from generation to generation the abuse that you talk about within our systems within our institutions um you know when we're saying let's not talk about it and ignoring that it happens um this has a ripple effect in families and in communities and you know this is this is how we're raising the future generations of sings and gores um to perpetuate this so this is a really important discussion that needs to be had mm-hmm. because i remember when um i guess i was lucky in the respect that uh, i used to study at a catholic school most of my uh, studies were done in a catholic school my schooling yeah, and um what happened was that uh, they once sent a form home saying that uh, your child will be learning about puberty now at school mm-hmm. are you happy with it or not so i mean i didn't know what puberty was at the time yeah. but uh, i guess i was lucky that my parents signed it off saying well yes we trust the school to take care of this matter for us but then around the same time when this was happening 2004 2005 i can't really remember when um in between those two years there was a play in the uk by a punjabi playwright which um focused on a on a woman who i believe is a character she migrated to the uk in that play and she was uh, sexually abused by the granthi of a gurukar yeah and i think i remember hearing about this it was about grooming and stuff right Yes and it sort of focused on the on the aspects of sexual abuse which transpire in the community and more so because uh it happens because I guess because there is that uh I mean for example there was a sexual abuse case here where I live and uh, it was a grantee who did it again 
but the victim, because she was a girl, because she was a girl, the family sort of tried suppressing everything. You know that uh, if you go out and talk to someone, it will be uh, you know, like it will be sullied. But the girl still went through the school and then the committee tried hiding the matter. But the police ultimately got justice for her. And at that time when this play came out, I mean, it's pretty relevant now. That's the irony. But at that time, what happened was that um, people just went on a massive protest. There were death threats delivered to the playwright. It was pulled from the stage. It was quite a inflammatory situation down there in the UK. But now looking at it almost like two decades later, there is that irony that, wait a second, that playwright was right all along. This does happen in Gurdwaras. It's only now that people have started speaking up that we know there are issues around this. But the way the community tried suppressing it is equally amazing as well, that everyone just united to silence that voice. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's a really unfortunate with, you know, like you talked about, um, you know, Sadi Besti Hoki and stuff. And that's always the, uh, you know, we want to, we want the rest of the world to be proud of six. And when we talk about issues, whatever they are, whether it's, um, you know, sexual abuse or anything like that, why are we airing our dirty laundry to the rest of the world? Why can't we show them that we're this perfect, um, you know, united bunch that, you know, is just rainbows and lollipops and everything and, <laughs> and it, it, that we make it look bad, right? We're giving other people a reason to hate us or to, you know, question our sikhi and stuff like this, but we have to. And victim blaming is nothing new. Um, you know, and I, I, I just my heart goes out to the victims that have been silenced and that have been doubted and that, you know, the, the families, and it's not just girls. I need to <clears throat> emphasize that as well. Um, yep. That's a whole other, you know, um, uh, 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 you know, this stuff that's in the shadows of our, of our communities and our Gordwara and our schools and our families of thinking that these types of things only happen to certain girls um, that's not true. And, uh, you know, I, one of the things that I'll, I'll just touch on is that, um, Big and I have the unique opportunity to, as far as being kind of outsiders in the Sangat of not being mm. connected to our families and we're not from a long line of whatever last name, sick family and stuff like that, um, yep. is that we have for the last probably seven, eight years since we really started coming into Sangat and being a part of Gordore, had yep. always, whether it's me or him or both of us sometimes, having people come to us and say, you know, um, can, I, can I confide in you about something? Can I tell you something? And just knowing that we're not related to so-and-so and that we don't know so-and-so, we didn't go to school with what's his name and flanathlan and coming to us with these deep dark secrets and we're thinking like this is a this is a fraction this is a tiny part of one local sangat and you know when we were in the uk we have people that pull us aside and longer and say you know can i ask you a question and asking us things we know they have never said to anybody else and we're thinking that's just two people you don't know me from you know a hole in the ground but you think you can come up to me and ask me these things this is a conversation that really has to happen and when we shine a light on it it's going to be uncomfortable and it's gonna you know egos are going to get hurt and you know everything comes out into the light and everything but that's the only way we're going to move forward with anything and i think that that really points to the lack of of uh safe spaces you know mm -hmm. in the punjabi community the punjabi sikh community for people to really get help or, you know, to find, you know, different ways where they can educate themselves or make even more informed decisions because there's literally no one that they can talk to. And I think a lot of people feel so emboldened to come up and talk to us, which like my heart goes out to them, but like at the same time, like I do appreciate it. Like I'm always going to give a hundred percent and, you know, try to help them as best we can. We both do. I think they feel so emboldened to come and talk to us because they realize no, like no one has to explain to them the kind of treatment we've probably been given and we actually have been given. Um, that's just been uh, so detestable because we're interracial. And so like they look at us and be like, these people definitely aren't going to judge me because they know what it's like to be judged. So with such incredible scrutiny. 
you know <laughs> so it's like yeah look at us like we're it's like we're waving a flag you know of like <laughs> it's gonna come be to video. us <laughs> yeah come to us Yep. And I guess one other thing which I'd like to point out is you must be really strong that you make a choice that I want to follow Sikhi and then uh, you hear about the Sikh gurus. You obviously, you know, delve into the injunctions of the Guru Granth Sahib, the wisdom. But then when you see the reality that in Gurdwaras themselves, there's so much discrimination. I mean, I apologize for being vulgar. There is so much bullshit going on in Gurdwaras, but still you still are firmly stuck to Sikhi. And that's amazing because lesser people would have said, oh, well, if they don't want me, then I don't want them. I'll just leave and find another religion or something. Right. You know, it's, it's, I, I guess it's kind of works out in my favor. Like I grew up in the um, Southern Baptist tradition in Christianity. Yes. And, you know, in that community, there's, you know, some people have sort of made it out to a joke about how if you have a disagreement with the politics, with the community at one church, you just go and find another church and you just keep going until you find the one that you like. <laughs> yep. you know, so, like so it's like, I kind of, I, I always shied away from that. Um, and the other thing is like me coming from outside the Punjabi community and having friends that are from, different cultures all over the world, I can see it as if it's self-evident that this is not strictly a Southeast Asian problem. It's not just a Punjabi problem. It's literally in every culture, right? Mm. Every religion is going to have this problem of hypocrisy. So it's, yes, it's incredibly frustrating. And, you know, I think, you know, your, your assessment of it is, even still in and of itself, a euphemism <laughs> because it's so bad when you think about the mm. incredibly high standard, you know, of, of, of ethical behavior, moral behavior uh, in Sikhi. Yep. And look how, how, how far we are below that in like, not everybody, but, you know, at least institutionally uh, from, from the top down, right? Mm. And I guess when you can't trust the Gurdwara Granthi, I mean, when we were younger, we used to be left at Gurdwaras because um, obviously some migrant families who had just moved over from India or from somewhere else, they really couldn't afford the price of daycare centers or, you know, centers were far away. So we used to be left at Gurdwaras, you know, with the Granthis and the Ragis, they, they used to look after us and uh, we used to be left to our own devices. But um, then... Uh, a few years ago, a girl actually approached me who I knew and um, she had moved over to the USA and she told me that all those years ago that um, the, well, is that the Gurdwara? Well, I guess the euphemism was had touched her and that led to a massive um, round of confessions and exposures down here. But at the end of the day, people were really asking her that, you know, your parents were educated. They were both surgeons here. Why didn't you tell your parents? And she said, I told my parents I must have been, or she must have been up to 10 years old. And the parents just sort of told her to put a lid on it that uh, if she told someone else, they would be uh, ostracized from the community, humiliated. No one would do anything to the grunty. And the tragedy was that this girl let that actually shape her life. So even now, if, I mean, it might be a little incident as, you know, she might drop a cup of water at home or, you know, a plate might break from her hands. And her husband was telling me that she just has a problem trying to uh, tell anyone about it because she will just start crying because of how she's been, uh, I guess, mm -hmm. mentally abused by the parents who she pretty much trusted as being her first and last line of defense. Mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to share very vaguely uh, my experience with this. Um, and I'll, I'll just very vaguely say that uh, I can relate um, and I'll just leave it at that. But what I will say is that as a, you know, from a, you know, I guess like a well-off family or whatever in our community and everything, when I was about 16, 17 years old, and uh, one day I went to the Gordora by myself because I'd stopped going to my classes and everything. And I used to go to the Gordora to just clear my head, sit and you know, sit in the Vaughn Hall and stuff and just listen to part and then leave for a while. And one day, um, one of the Ragi or the Parti or something, somebody opened the door and then said, don't come here again without your parents and slam the door. And 
I immediately thought, what have I learned in 16 years? What does Gurdwara mean? This is literally Guru's Dwar, and you shut the door. I'm out. I didn't go to a Gurdwara for almost 10 years after that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you think of a young girl carrying that with her after what's happened there. And I had come out of an extremely abusive family life that, you know, the, the, the toll that that takes on somebody. We think that these girls, maybe somebody just said something to them. Maybe somebody just said, like, you know, or something ridiculous like that, right? Or now it's things that these girls are wearing sleeveless um, you know, suits to the Gurdwara or that they wear jeans and, you know, whatever the case is. We're always being, you know, vilified for what we wear. It's always our problem. And, yep. you know, it's always something we've done to be promiscuous or to be, you know, capricious and asking for it or something like this. And so, especially for these young girls that are in the Panth, and I, I'll say it also for these young boys that are in the, the Sangat as well, you know, this is this is shaping everything you think of when we think of Guru Sadji being Aung San or being like our mother or our father or our brother or our sister or our best friend and when each of those relationships is incredibly dysfunctional you can't help but think that that is because of Sikhi you know you are in a religion that tells you don't question the authority of anybody that's wearing Bana or wearing a star or wearing Shasters or anything that they're these vanguards of this faith and you're supposed to just mm. shut up and hanji hanji and mm. so what what relationship will you have with your guru how would you even want to you know to find your own way in Sikhi and have a relationship with Vaiguru at all and and you know have any spiritual you know really some significant relationship in your life I guess that point you make that the religion tells you when like we have all been through that stage where we become so disillusioned with Sikhi. We are like, you know what, I'll be happy as an atheist. But then sometimes in life, some things happen which bring you back to Sikhi. That was that was the case with me. Mm-hmm. And when I came back, I actually sat down and sort of reanalyzed what I believed. And then I went straight off Gurbani and I started, you know, this might be controversial. All the Pracharaks were being dismissed today as being a... Uh, vulgar or too anti-Sikh or, you know, opposed to traditional or classical Sikhi, I decided I'm going to listen to those people, read their works and try seeing what um what their side of the story is. Maybe that, you know, like you were saying, people in Bana, maybe somewhere along the way I got it wrong. So I, I would, I'm not going to name the author who actually wrote the series of books. It's quite controversial. But anyway, what happened was that... Uh, I decided I'd actually read a book, uh, which was more like a pamphlet. So what happened was that this was on sexual abuse in the community. It was in Gurmukhi. Mm-hmm. And I read it and it was amazing how the author actually described how religion is being used to suppress women. Yep. And in reality, the problem we have in India, like because we have that shared Indian culture, is that sex is being repressed down there. We are not about to talk about it. We're not about to, you know, not a, even allowed to uh, sort of even mention the term without being heavily criticized. And that's actually led to this culture of fear where everyone's thinking that, um, oh, if I talk about it, if I discuss it, or even if I express my feelings publicly, I'll be heavily persecuted. Mm-hmm. And that sort of bred this inner, uh, I guess, tempestuousness where... Uh, now you have people with repressed sexual desires and it's fundamentally more so in religious people because in religi- uh, religious countries, sex is derided heavily. But amazingly enough, it's in religious countries that, you know, rape and sexual abuse mostly happens in mostly religious communities and countries. And you really need to start thinking that if we were to liberalize ourselves and tell our children, look, it's a natural part of life, it happens why don't we accept it and just move on? If we were to, uh, I guess, indulge in, you know, womanizing, it's going to come back to bite us in the butt later in life. Let's just treat it ethically and morally, but let's not try repressing the fact that it's a natural part of life. But ultimately, in our community, especially the Punjabi community, the conservatism is so fundamentally strong that 
Sorry to say this has just bred a generation of religious rapists, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think it, it sort of what you're getting at, too, like in terms of the social structures that kind of reinforce this. Um, it reminds me of where, where I grew up in Southern California. Um, when I was when I was young, the city that I'm from was uh, like the teen pregnancy capital of North America at that time. Yep. And there was so much um, anger about this idea of sex education. And there was so much going on there. Um, there was such a, a strong dialogue of people saying, listen, if in the school system, you only want to advocate for abstinence. Just know that that's 100% not going to work. We've done the research, we've ran all the numbers, it doesn't work. You have to educate people. And so when you look at, in any other system, like a, in, in a society that's you know, um, more governed by religious figures or any, like a social circle that's more governed by, by religious figures, we have that same sort of mentality of let's not talk about it and let's just completely ignore that it exists. And as far as you're concerned, you know, the only purpose of marriage is this very specific function of childbirth, you know, and child rearing, then naturally I would, of course, you're going to have this, this massive dysfunction and people are going to fall into a lot of these traps, which could have been avoided if only they were more educated, but they just haven't even been given that chance. Mm -hmm. Well, we, can I jump in for a second? If we talk to our kids or not even kids amongst each other as adults and have a normal conversation about you know, about anything like this, about what the purpose is of this, what does Gurbani say about it, how natural this is and everything. That, as a woman, that conversation cannot be had without talking about consent and the the levels of consent. And I'll just say, like, as a woman, you know, are we taught our daughter consent. Well, she was teaching us about consent at <laughs> six months old. And that's as little as you know, oh, go say hi to so-and-so and, put you know, handing her off to someone and she, you know, they arch their back and they turn away from you like, no, I don't want to. Mm. And you just throw them on someone else's, you know, throw them in someone's arms or, you know, someone comes over, or, you know, go give someone, go say sastrikal, go give someone a big hug. And kids are, no, I don't want to. And we're like, go, go say sastrikal, give them a hug. That never happened with her. And now, you know, you say, like, go say fate to so-and-so. She'll stand 10 feet back and say fate and look at them like, but I'm not hugging them. <laughs> that is, that's what we wanted. But if, you know, and, and I was raised that way of go give some creepy uncle a big hug and say sashigal to them and you, you cringe inside and you don't want to. And, you know, every single family I know has that uncle that all the kids are just like oh i don't want to go near him and stuff and parents are saying like stay away from so and so but we don't talk about it past that mm -hmm. and we'll say when it comes to a wedding or there's a kitten or there's a part or a house program go say sashikal go give so and so a big hug why why do we need to do that why do we need to keep up appearances that everything is normal and allow this type of nonsense to continue in the shadows and you know and it's just it re-traumatizes them and i'll just say like you know these from my experience as well is that you remember those moments more than the actual abuse of how many times that person smiled at me and how many person times that person was like oh it's okay i'll take them to school and how much trust the family had in them and stuff but you don't have a voice from when you're very very young there's no you know you you can't say no mm. yeah you can't you teach kids you teach kids that if their family if they're from the Gurdwara, if they're from any of these types of places, they can't be wrong, right? Yep. We'll say to them, for I'm using it as an example or whatever, right? No, you know, whatever, right? Go give them a big hug. What are you doing? Go, right? And you're saying like to that child, and I'll say, well, I don't care if they're five years old or 20 years old, that's still, you know, a child's innocence. You're saying to that person, it doesn't matter what they're doing. Your relationship overrides any yes no any i don't want to or whatever and you're teaching them that that abuse within those closed systems is a hundred percent acceptable mm. and i guess the predator if you can say that the predator in question they're always looking for that opportunity aren't they opportunity to oh, exploit yeah. the existing structure and you yeah. sending your child over to them is pretty much uh 
signaling to them that you trust them, and they just build upon that trust until they have the child alone, powerless at their mercy, and then I guess when a tragedy happens, see later in life, that victim of sexual abuse will rebel against the family, things will come out, and then it's usually the parents who are actually left a pretty shamefaced, sitting there thinking that only if he could have avoided that, but mm-hmm. they still won't express that feeling because they'll be thinking, oh, it's not part of our culture, not part of our religion. And that conflation between religion and culture is also another thing which has uh, sort of allowed quite a lot of victims, uh, Sikh victims of sexual abuse to be repressed because if the cultural line doesn't work with a stubborn child, because I was a pretty stubborn child myself, it usually becomes, I know it's a religious issue. This is a religious matter. You can't say that against them. It's only your imagination. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's just ultimately, uh, I would personally say that's a very deadly sentiment to yeah. have, to give to your yeah. children. Absolutely. And like you said, there's always going to be that one kanjar in the family, one kanjar uncle, <laughs> who everyone's going to say, look, especially the girls. The girls are the ones who are told by the mothers, aunties, sisters, stay away from him. Don't let him touch you. But no one's yeah. going to go and confront him face to face, are they? Yeah, no, that's right. And I guess this is where another question might become that how did the gurus raise their children? Yeah, I'm, I, I, I've had this question in my mind previously, not necessarily in terms of sexuality, but something that came to my mind, which I was curious about was when I think about uh, the Battle of Jim yep, and I think about um, uh, Jajar Singh, Jajar Singh asking for Agya to go into the battlefield, I think about like a child that young, think of like, you, how would that happen if there was no training beforehand? Mm-hmm. And he's, he's telling his father, you've trained me so much in using weapons and riding horses and singing kirtan. Like, you've given me all this preparation. I'm ready for this moment. And that shows, I think, to me, that really speaks about a legacy, at least in terms of the gurus, of empowering their children from the youngest age. I mean, even look at the Shortasabzade and what they were capable of. I mean, that speaks a great deal, not only to how the the gurus' family operated, but how their sangat operated as well to Mm. reinforce that mindset. And I... Sad to say, I think that that's died out, you know, quite a lot, you know, in in the last, you know, however many generations. But I think that there there must be some kind of legacy there. That's it's it's not as glorious, I think, in terms of you know, uh, writing policy or standing between two armies or you know facing down enemy that's you know outnumbers you a hundred or a thousand to one, right? That's something as mundane as raising a family and the inner workings of that. Um, I think it maybe gets downplayed so much or just come, like written out of history. When you look at the lives of the gurus, it's pretty tragic that we have mythologized them to such a degree that we just accept them as demigods at the moment, don't we? The gurus had miraculous powers, the gurus had this, the gurus had that. Whoever wants to believe it, they're welcome to believe that if, you know, that's how they want to follow Sikhi. But then from another end, if you look at the dynamics of their family life, they raised families, they had children, you see that overarching tendency to ingratiate a sense of right and wrong in their children. I mean, Guru Ramdas had three children out of which Guru Arjan Dev Ji was the youngest one. And when Pirthi Chand turned against his father, uh, turned against Sikhi, as Guru Nanak had, you know, given it to our Sikhs, Guru Arjan Devji stood firmly and said, whatever you do, Pirthi Chand, even though you're my brother, I'm not going to allow you to destroy Sikhi as it is. I'm not going to, you know, give you my consent as Guru to do as you want to. And then you come down to Guru Hargob and Sahib now look at the training he must have been given from his younger days that, you know, you are to live for Baba Nanak's ideology. You are to imbibe it. And Guru Hargobind Sahib Ji sacrificed a major portion of his life. He's actually a living martyr to, you know, not only physically battle to defend that ideology, 
but save it from total annihilation at the hands of the state. And as you come down the whole lineage, you see where the gurus had children who were found wanting. They were always moved away to the side, but the children who were worthy of, you know, becoming gurus or leading the community, they were actually given that independence, you know, to go out in the world and do as they would because the gurus knew that they had trained them perfectly. But the problem with us nowadays is that we want the children to reflect our own virtues, uh, not virtues, our own uh, ideas in life. Like, you know, as Benji was saying, no one's going to confront that, you know, rapist uncle. Everyone wants to be uh, quiet around him, but the children will be told not to, uh, you know, approach him when he's alone. But they will also be told not to say anything to his face, even mm -hmm. if he does something to them. Yeah, exactly. And it's said that that is, you know, respecting your elders, which I think is another way of saying that, you know, just shut the hell up. We don't want to do anything about it. You have no right to do anything about it. Yeah, that's uh, about sums it up. And you know, okay. we we, uh, yep. we have to think also about the examples that our guru set. And, I, you know, also I, I feel like as a woman, I know I've heard so many comparisons to, you know, well, as far as, you know, when you question the status quo or, well, you know, I'm, I'm not, I shouldn't have to do this or how come guys can do this and I can't do this. This is a double standard that, you know, um, gores come to me about quite often and say, you know, I'm, I'm with a guy and it's well known in Sangat that he's had X number of girlfriends before me, but why am I the one that's being ostracized and singled out and whatever when I'm dating him, but he's had X number of relationships before me. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's, that's not what the issue is, right? If we're talking about why it's okay for, you know, the, this double standard to exist and everything. And, and it's, it's so multifaceted that it's, um, you know, the, it's hard to see if this kind of thing comes from, it's, I don't think comes from Sikhi at all, because I don't read anywhere in Gurbani that it would say to, you know, subjugate women and to, you know, do what you want with them and that were objects for simply for childbirth and for child rearing and for nurturing a family. So I think it's however we've distorted what, you know, the legacy that our gurus left us into being what's convenient for us today and what's easier to perpetuate today. And, you know, we hear things like, well, you know, if that was the case, if you did have equal rights, if you really were as an equal to a thing, why do you think the Panjabiyari were all men? Why do you think that gurus were all men? Why do you, and they use these types of things that are so left field that you're thinking like, what does that have to do with, with you yep. know, basic human rights as a woman? Yep. I guess I'll answer those two questions right now because those are the same questions I'm getting from the live feed at the moment that, you know, about the Panjabiyaris. Now about the gurus, the gurus were predominantly men, but if you look at it, they fought for women's rights. They oh, yeah. went against society, 101%. So that's really pretty much a non-question. That's just, a, in my opinion, that's a straw man to distract from the fundamental issue of women's rights and Sikhi, as you just mentioned. Regarding the Panjabiyaris, I mean, from 1678, we have evidence that Guru Gobind Singh Ji had started signing himself off as Gobind Singh and referring to the Khalsa. So the Panjabiyaris were actually chosen after a 20-year analysis of all the existing Sikhs. But after that, we need to remember that did the Guru actually codify that we need five males to be the Panjabiyaris or did he say five Sikhs? And mm -hmm. I'm always thinking that, you know, based on like contemporary historic sources like Pai, Jetas, Gurkata, the Guru came out on the stage and demanded the head of a Sikh three times. Now, mm -hmm. Sikh is a gender-inclusive term, isn't it? Yeah. So when no one rose up those three times, he just turned around to Dearam and said, okay, Dearam, you come on then if no one else wants to come on. So yeah. it, it wasn't that Dear Singh was intended to be the Panjapiara from the start. He was just the backup but because no one rose, their Ram was chosen to become their Singh. But on those very grounds, it's also evident that women were also equally administered Amrit by the Guru. So why try banning them from the ceremony itself? I mean, if the argument is made we are trying to preserve originality here, well then, can we have the same weight, the same height, the same complexion, Panjabiaris, as the original five? 
same cast maybe same uh, hair color so it's just a never ending cycle of uh, political correctness which will never get us anywhere yeah i'd be curious to see what the with the um, overarching responses to a conversation like this, if it's for people saying, you know, what's the, and now what, like, how do we, how do we, um, you know, give back to, you know, give back to women what's been, you know, distorted and convoluted all these centuries, really. And, you know, or if there's a sort of, you know, don't rock the boat, it is what it is, it works for us now. And, get her off your show <laughs> no no we, i mean we i, I wouldn't sort of t tolerate that get her off the show no we we are pretty inclusive down here but um the issue it really comes back to is as you have mentioned and as i can summarize here is that all this issue with sex and the Sikhs a fear that we can't talk about it can't discuss it can't even say that the victim of the rape uh, victim of a rape is innocent you know because Every time we hear of a rape case, somewhere, somehow, some Sikh person is going to say, not Sikh in the sense that they're fundamentally religious, but in that Punjabi conservative sense, oh, the victim must have done something wrong. Oh, she must mm -hmm. have been wearing a miniskirt. And a few years ago, uh, Pracharika, very famous Pracharika, I'm not going to name names, came over from India and um, he made a bit of an issue in the Gurdwaras attending. Uh, one of my friends said those are... Uh, torn jeans you know the ones where the knees are cut out so you can see the flesh underneath oh, yeah, yeah. so um he made this big issue later in the library that um we can't have that cause that sort of inspires lust in women women can't wear those sleeveless tops even little girls cause it inspires lust in um men so i sort of reacted not because he was my friend but because you know i just wanted to ask him a question and i said um my grandfather survived the partition and during those times Sikh men took off their turbans, their dastars, and covered up naked women and prevented them from being raped. And by Gurdas tells us that it's not the woman who's at fault. Teach your sons, you know, better effort rather yeah. than objectify women. And he had nothing to say after that. Mm -hmm. And I told him that if you're saying that this is inspiring lust, well, then maybe you should talk about lust to the Sangat. But if you're really going to sort of start, you know, playing the victim card here that, you know, a woman might get horny was his exact words. <laughs> so why woman, you know, why can't men be uh, equally lustful? But because he was a man himself, he had nothing more to say after that. And he just told me, well, uh, if you have so much gyan, you people can keep on wearing those pants. And it was just a stupid little issue over pants, which you made a big deal about. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's so many, you know, even if it's not about lust or anything else, you know, we, the, the community holds women to a much higher um, standard than men, you know, yep. um, and it, it's, it's all of, you know, we've made it so hard for women to, um, you know, to, to really be involved in Sangat and in Seva and in the Pant. We've done everything we can to put up these roadblocks and saying, you know, um, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. Uh, my hair was barely shoulder length when I, um, you know, made the decision to um, be blessed to receive Amrit. And I did the best I could in braiding my hair. Like, I, I couldn't even keep a kanga inside it. I kind of tied a little thread into the back of the kanga and braided it into my hair as best as I could. Yep. And was stopped at the door and told, you can't have a braid when you receive Amrit. And I was sort of like, well, um, <laughs> you know, I don't know that anybody here, you know, a lot of things braid their hair before they do a dastar. I don't understand this. And, you know, what was my option at the time? I said Hanji and left and did what I could to try and change that. And even then you're sitting there thinking like, you've stopped me at the doorway saying I can't do this. You've stopped me based on that. You know, I had my jumni on and everything as best as I could and was stopped there like no not like this and that after you receive Amrit there's there'll be no more braiding of your hair <laughs> and so you know and and uh it, it might sound ridiculous and maybe it's what however some people want to keep their rat is not my business but to exclude women for something like that that's something that you can see right but we know that there are things that do things that are behind closed doors that nobody sees that we can't stop them at the doorway and say you can't be one of the bunge or you can't be 
ragi or you can't be whatever and keep them from positions of influence and from seva and sangat because we don't know what they're doing but a mm. woman you can see what she wears you can see that she's wearing you know i hear this all the time from you know other women in sangat that they wear the star they wear their gatra and they wear shastra and everything else but they might have worn a little bit of a tinted lip gloss <laughs> and are told no no you're done with makeup you received amrit take it off Mm-hmm. or earrings or whatever it is like it's just ridiculous and yeah, that's all the stuff that you can see and again as being judged and it's being you know we're we're just you, you know everybody's got their mind made up about women from first glance mm-hmm. what kind of woman that is because she wears jeans and the star or you know i used to hear about women that uh, they wore the star they came from school they were wearing a sweater and jeans they were dressed appropriately like as far as modesty or whatever like not tight jeans or whatever the issue is but that they need to wear a chimney and they're the star because they're showing their neck jesus and Christ. things like <laughs> yep yep and this is i mean this is 21st century sikhi in canada right so yep. it's how far did we really come and i guess um if someone was to make a video now like amritari and say let's for example it's me and i stand up and i start saying that you know that let's just take canada for example you know canadian culture is in sikh culture a sikh woman needs to be fully covered up they need to wear that you know punjabi salwar kameez they need that chunni they need this they need that what's the impression that a non sikh gets they'll be thinking the wait a second how did we let these fundamentalists come into the country kick mm-hmm. them out of here and then it suddenly becomes a issue because um it will get to a point where someone's going to start saying let's look at their religion and such people aren't going to say we are going to sit down and, and profoundly study sikhi they're going to go off what we are saying and then suddenly you know um as sorry as i am to say this after 911 the yeah. prophet muhammad will, is even today abused extensively online and mm-hmm. that's not based on his own teachings that's pretty much based on the impression which some of his uh, followers or people who claim to be his followers gave to the world at large and similarly there will be people who will start abusing our gurus and then we will be left at these crossroads where we are trying to defend our faith from exterior attacks which originate because we misinterpreted our faith or interpreted it in a particular light yeah one thing that one thing that comes to my mind about this is um i think uh, aside from the distinction that needs to be made between um you know someone um doing like having some kind of behavior that is um you know uh, endangering themselves or just kind of like an honest honest mistake right yep. versus somebody who's being called out for something that's actually really quite trivial um i think outside of that distinction like if you're in a gurdwara or, or anywhere um when is it ever acceptable to approach either one of those two situations by condemning that person i i don't think that's that's beneficial to them or to you in any way right like wouldn't you um if it was something like like sometimes when i'm in the in the gurdwara it's happened i've seen it a few times now someone will walk in and they have you know, obviously they don't really go there very often they don't cover their head when they walk into the divan mm. and immediately every person who sees them will start shooting them dirty looks <laughs> and whispering to each other and you're thinking if they knew better i don't think they'd be doing this <laughs> yeah. how about you get up and you walk over and you very respectfully and politely say oh excuse me i'm sorry let me help you right yeah. if if it's any any whatever the behavior is why is that not your intention from the start to say i like let me talk to this person and encourage them right let me support them instead of let me point the finger and talk about why this is wrong and come up with 100 justifications for why i'm right and why we should push these people to the side or make them feel ashamed for something that's like probably nothing at all it's not not a big deal and we shouldn't we shouldn't even be wasting our time talking about it mm-hmm. yeah people i guess punjabi people like a hot spicy gossip and that's 
one of the fundamental issues. And, and you see it in Gurdwaras all the time in the Langar Hall. That's where most of the gossipers gather. <laughs> you know, sorry to say, it's like, um, uh, you know, a few years back, I was sitting there and um, I'm not going to, like, senior citizens are the worst. I'll say it out loud. They know just about everything which is happening in the country, see community. It's like, you know, listening to the BBC live radio telecast, like, they know each and everything about whose daughter is dating who, whose son is dating who, who's going to run away with who. And it's <laughs> just amazing that, you know, a few people have come here to the Gurdwara. And if there is such a situation in someone's house, shouldn't you as elders of the community be trying to find a solution to unify rather than break apart? But like you put big, it's just the opposite with our people. They just don't seem to care, particularly the older generation, the new generation, they're trying to cast off that uh, restriction, those chains of culture, and trying to discover Sikhi from within. But that battle has only started, and it will be an uphill struggle, I guess. You know, I um, I had this experience as a kid whose Ramal was sliding off in the Lunger Hall, and yep. I just said, like, uh, you know, he's right in front of me. I didn't shout at her or anything or, you know, wasn't mean about it. And I yep. just said, you know, like, hey, I was like, up on a set to go and just kind of showed her, like, hey, your Ramal's coming off. And um, the Bibi that was next to me, she says, uh, oh, I wouldn't even bother. And I said, well, <laughs> no, if it was my kid, I would want somebody to say, like, oh, your Ramal came off or your chimney came off or something. Why not? And she said, your generation doesn't want to hear anything about what to do or be told anything from anybody. She said that she had told someone my age, um, you know, like, whatever, 30s or whatever. We'll just go, <laughs> go, we'll go that way. Um, you know, something about same thing. Let's say same thing of, you know, Sartako or or something like that. She said this woman got up from Lunger and had her glass of water and told her in Punjabi or whatever, like, mind your business and dumped her glass of water on her. And Ooh. she said, since then, I don't care what I see kids doing. And I see a lot sitting down here. She went on this whole thing of, you know, non like you don't want to hear anything from anybody and you're just going to do what you want to do anyway. So we just stay out of it. So, yes, on one hand, I'm aware of Gupshap Corner that's in the Lunger Hall and whatever. <laughs> but, you know, like they've all, I can just imagine, say we go back to that conversation of the, you know, the the abuse or the the put downs or anything that we've had a lifetime of being told Akhilag and just hanji hanji and whatever and you've had enough of it now you finally decide to come to the Gordara maybe you have kids of your own the last thing you're going to do is let some uncle tell your kid cover your head <laughs> right yep. we did this though we've created that right yep and that's a big mess because if you come to think about it that woman I mean I'm not actually saying oh well i'm not trying to judge her life but i guess someone else would have just turned around and asked oh well auntie when you were younger did husband uh, did uncle ever listen to you to not have a peg mm. and that would have just repeatedly backfired there and i think again what this comes down to is that obedience and respect are only given to people who deserve it but in punjabi culture it's pretty much that if you're below a certain age you have to bend over for everyone and every everything. Yeah, Teg and I have just leaned into the fact that we're aunties and uncles now. I think it's good. <laughs> it's, it works in our favor now. <laughs> yep, so you can pull back. Yeah. Yep. And I guess coming back to the fact that I'll just start wrapping this up as it mm -hmm. is. Um, this has been a productive conversation. Thank you for that. But as a recap... Yes, the community has a problem with sex, and this is not a Sikh, like a Sikh ideology-related problem. It's more to do with culture, because unfortunately, even though Baba Nanak emphasized a new form of culture based on Sikh values, Sikhs themselves have never been able to adopt that Sikh culture. They're still, uh, they're still regress uh, regressing into Punjabi culture as it is with its uh, objectification of women, alcoholism, uh, you know, as you pointed out, patriarchy. And until or unless they liberalize themselves as the guru wanted them to, we will still be roaming around these issues. We'll still be suppressing the voices of, you know, victims of sexual abuse. And uh, one of the cases I was involved with a long time back, the police told me um, 
something interesting. They said, oh, well, you know, Mr. Singh, in your community, if you don't like a person or if you don't like their views, you're going to say they're a child molester. And when you say that, even though that person is innocent, the damage is already done. And then that person is going to retaliate at you. And ultimately, it's the authorities trying to chase down who's innocent and who's actually a real, you know, predator. You know, there's um, there's a, a very famous um, Pratarik. There was some allegations that came out about, um, you know, his involvement with underage youth. And yep. it was, you know, either kids came out of the woodwork saying me too, or the other side of it was, well, that's when you know you're really an effective Pratarik and really um, growing bunt when people start trying to tear you down. Yep, and, and I guess um, if I remember correctly, he was actually uh, declared innocent from the high courts at the time as well. Yeah, and there's there's several others though, and and they just, you know, I think with social media and everything too now, is it's very easy to you know malign someone one way or another. But uh, I really wanted to thank you for having the space to have this discussion, and I I, I know we're recapping it, and I think. While we acknowledge that there is a problem, the solution, I don't have a magic wand where I can make it go away and to the victims and everybody that's still struggling with this stuff that's even happened decades ago, is yeah. our godbare, our communities, our institutions, however we do it, we need to have these safe spaces and then the resources instead of just talking about it of the, you know, the what now. And I'm not... A professional or anything by any means but for what it's worth if anybody wants to reach out to me but you have my contact information i don't mind if you share it yep yep and i guess on that note as well when you are the victim of a such a you know i guess when you're the victim of sexual abuse it daily kills you because you're doubting yourself that did this happen or did this not happen because when it's done by a person you trust you're always forced to doubt yourself by friends, family, and even in the courts, the defense lawyers always try to make you doubt yourself. And many victims just give up and retreat into their own you know, minds that we aren't going to pursue justice anymore. That's it. But I will appeal to such people that if not for yourself, then at least do it for you know, future would-be victims. Mm -hmm. Because if you believe that you have been sullied or you have been afflicted with sin, it's not your fault. That's not your problem. I mean, back in the day, there were countless women raped by the Afghans who Singhs eventually ended up marrying. And there was never any stigma attached to a victim of a rape. You know, like um, yeah. today we say that a rape victim is a prostitute. I think that's quite callous and that's just dehumanizing a person who has already suffered much. I mean, if you look in the West, a woman can be walking down the street naked at night. Chances of her being sexually molested are pretty low when you compare it to religious countries. And if we come to Sikhi, let's just step back and think that in the past, if Sikhs used to take off their dastars to cover up naked women, today we are going around abusing women, you know, orally abusing women who have been physically tortured and this happens in each and every Punjabi family, doesn't it? There will be that woman who's sexually abused by her husband, even by brother-in-laws, but no one's going to raise a voice for her. But they need to be strengthened because only a victim can become the warrior. Only a survivor can fight for justice because they have experienced the pain. We haven't. We can only provide counseling and uh, I guess we can tell you to sort of just you know, give yourself up a battle otherwise it's really up to you as a victim to fight for yourself and if not for yourself then for others yeah and i i'm man so much to say but i think oh, it... keep on going. hey Doug, <laughs> you can keep on going if you want to because i can just extend this podcast anyhow <laughs> i think it's it's really important for not only just to to have this have these discussions and have spaces where we can really rally around you know people who are who have been uh, victimized in the past but um you know i will say like one thing for at least in our experience like russ fears experience and my experience 
So I'm aware of the kind of abuse that Rescue was, was um, tormented with through her childhood. And yep. I know what kind of person she was when she was inundated by, by that community that was fostering that. Hmm. And I know how she was when she left that environment and the kind of work that went into her rebuilding herself. And hmm. I can say that having that community, even after the fact, you know, long after the fact of people who were there to support you, to help get you professional resources, um, people who are just being the best friends that they can be and are there to listen to you and not tell you how to think and how to feel. Um, she's come leaps and bounds, you know, in 15 years that I've known her, it's really quite miraculous. It's a night and day difference from who she once was. And even mm. how she views her life, you know, I'm like, and it's, I think that with this sort of thing, it's now the onus of responsibility to sort of change things is really on every person, right? Especially in, in our generation who has that uh, courage and that opportunity to speak more critically about these things that are not being discussed openly or at all, you know, in, in so many, you know, young Punjabi families. And like in, in my experience and like, I'll talk about, like I have my, my experiences with um, post-traumatic stress disorder yep. and, you know, cause you know, I was in Iraq, I was in Afghanistan and I saw a lot of, you know, really evil things. Yep. And me coming away with this trauma, I know what that's like of, I, I don't trust myself. I don't trust other people. I don't know how to advocate for myself. Um, I start shutting down so much, you know, to, to the public or to my family, to my friends that I'm not talking about. And it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Yep. And thank goodness, like I have my wife here to support me and to encourage me and help me find programs so that I can start getting help along the way. But how can we as a community move forward if we don't have that for each other? You know someone in your family who is going through a hard time or somebody who is a victim of abuse. Um, what, what part of you is not screaming out to say, I should be advocating for this person or well, we should really be finding resources for our community so that, you know, even if there's no one in the Punjabi community that you can talk to and you can feel safe about it, at least let's tell them where to go so that they can get help. You know, let's not just keep them a prisoner here and say, yeah, things are really bad, but what are we supposed to do? Some, there are, mm. there are people that can help, right? Yep, yep. And I guess at the end of the day, one thing I'd add in from my personal experience you, as a victim, you must get to a stage where you want that help. I mean, initially, you will be quite closed off and sconced away. You know, you'll be thinking that, you know, I was in a bit of a situation a long time ago where I was quite um, aggressive. Uh, I used to be a professional fighter a long time back. So after that, like, after that career finished, I was quite aggressive towards everyone. Slowly but surely, I was made to see the value of getting help, and then ultimately, I wanted that help myself. But like you say, you need to put that person on the right path, and also support them, not give up on them until that person became uh, becomes independent enough to pursue that help themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And this isn't the 18th century or the 17th century anymore. I mean. Sometimes I think what's actually happened is that Sikhs have fought for survival, you know, for their survival for so long. They've essentially forgotten that, you know, Sikhi is there to be uh, followed as well, not solely protected. But today the battlefields have changed and it's more crucial to become Sikhs internally as well as externally because today's issues and problems are quite different from what we confronted on the field of battle all those centuries ago, which our forefathers did. Anyway, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, this was quite a great talk. And thank you, Benji, you know, for relating your own experiences. And uh, thank you as well, VG, for pointing out the problems which still afflict our community. Uh, until next time, Waheguru Jika Khalsa. Waheguru Jika Khalsa. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye.